0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrick. We are members of the board of directors of NILA, Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights.
1: And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. Thanks to everybody for coming back and listening again. And we are excited to bring back one of our favorite guests, Chuck Krugel, or Charles Krugel, I should say, a management... I am used to calling him Chuck. A management... All right, then you get it. You're Chuck. Chuck Krugel, a management side labor and employment attorney and human resource counselor who has been running his own practice for more than two decades. Chuck recently won an award, actually. The Decalogue Society has awarded Chuck their 2021... Decalogue presidential citation.
2: Yeah, Chuck, Chuck, welcome back. Thank you, appreciate it. Thanks for mentioning the award. No problem. Didn't Governor Pritzker speak at your award presentation? He presented it to me personally. <laughs> it was, it was all, just so everybody was aware. It was all video and all that, and and his <laughs> piece was pre-recorded. So. <laughs>
1: no, you heard it here. Chuck no. said Pritzker went to his house to give him the award. It's it's been it's it's canon now.
2: And also, they asked me a favor, but yeah. <laughs>
1: So Chuck, we want to talk a little bit about your history and sort of just the business of being a solo because you're a. I, I, I found you're unique. Now, through our podcast, we've met some other friends who were solos who I think you can kind of couch on the management side. Rachel Ablin being one. I know Lori Goldstein's a Nela member, but she does some of the defense work, so does Helen Block. But you, you're one of the only solo pure management side folks I know. So we want to talk about that a little bit. How did you end up on your own?
2: Well, it was a personality thing largely. I had worked for Chicago Public Schools, Lime States of Chicago, and a labor union, which were all salary jobs. And throughout all those jobs, every, people would always tell me, "You know, I don't. Know, you, you seem like you should be out in a law firm or doing this on your own or something like that." So in two thousand and one which was like still at the sort of the tail end of the tech boom, Uh, I decided to go off my own because a lot of people were then asking me advice on stuff like business related issues. And I thought to myself, and I was working for labor union then, I'm like, you know, I'm really not that comfortable working for labor union. This is a really different dynamic than what what I expected. It wasn't, honestly, it wasn't as like edgy, as edgier as I thought it was going to be. It was kind of a softer sort of job. And I decided, you know, maybe I, th- maybe this is it. Maybe this is like the time I should go off my own. It's 2001, you know, new millennium and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think I know this is wor- where I should be or what I want to be doing. And so I, instead of like helping out friends who are running businesses with giving them free advice, I started charging and started, you know, marketing, networking myself and all that then things just kind of snowball. How do you manage the litigation side on your own? Because
0: that, you know, it's tough when you're at a firm and you're obviously, and you have, in your first episode, you explained to us too, you have all these different buckets of work that you do. So how do you manage all
2: of that on your own? Technology, and then also just my gut instinct is usually enough to, to, you know, to get me from you know A to Z on stuff. So it's it's a you know it's a matter of judgment and and decision making, understanding how litigation works and and when to say when to do something or say something, or when to execute some part of a strategy, as opposed to you know just going all in at or just going being really obnoxious or whatever. So it's kind of like gauging that and when you when you're not in a firm in a law firm you're answering to a bunch of people so i don't have to answer to a bunch of people i don't have to run i mean for me to do a conflicts check takes a few minutes you know at most a few minutes for me to um, understand the case or to like do my due diligence on a client doesn't, you know, all that stuff is research oriented and doesn't take that long because technology makes it a lot easier. These days of the pandemic, I'm not meeting people in person, you know, face-to-face. So it's doing depositions and, and just doing any work in general, you know, virtually because anyway, in litigation outside of the trial, a lot of stuff can be done virtually. So, you know, there's not a lot of reason. I think that a lot of judges now realize this too because of the pandemic. We don't need to like 50 at least 50% of litigation work doesn't you don't need to be face to face in court.
0: Yeah. You know? I really. I really value virtual court right now. It just yeah. makes everything. It's better for the clients. It just saves yeah. money and for everyone.
2: It makes things a lot more manageable, a lot easier and I find, you know, that I could do things and because of the way I operate and you know how how I handle stuff I'll give you an example. I I was dealing with um, years ago on a matter with insurance matter, because this is not, we were talking about this before, but so it was insurance matter with a not-for-profit client. And I was dealing with another law firm because the client was worried. It was, it was against the state of Illinois. And the client was worried that I was going to get run roughshod over by the state. And, you know, they had this larger law firm also kind of overseeing me. And, it just wasn't the right dynamic for me. So what happened was, uh, we, we they fi- the state filed summary judgment against us, and on some small things, not major stuff. I was able to get the summary judgment denied, and which forced them to go, you know, to go further, and, and made, you know, and made settlement a lot more favorable. then. but had the way I went about it, the law firm they would not have done what I did. You know, there's a lot of things I've done that law firms would not, I don't think, condone. Like when I said, I told you the story about how I said to one, to the judge in federal court, how this attorney's like really obnoxious and rude and all that. I don't know if, you know, another law firm would have condoned that. Or I once messed with a labor union really bad, where I, this is a wild, this is a wild thing, but I didn't, I, I instead of serving their attorney something, I intentionally served the, the attorney's client. But that wasn't the legal or, or denial of process or anything like that. So it worked in my favor because we were. it was an arbitration. It was, it was actually in three different venues. And so one of the venues is arbitration. The other venue is Illinois Department of Employment Security. So they argued that I, I didn't properly serve them my final brief at the Illinois Department of Employment Security's Board of Review. But yet it showed plainly that I served the employee anyway, and it didn't apply in that situation, the ex parte, communica- you know, the whole idea of just, you know, talk of, dealing with their, dealing only with their attorney. I think another law firm would have done what I did, but it worked. So
1: Chuck, on our last episode with you, you mentioned about being a business owner as well as a law as an attorney. So that gives you, I guess, a unique perspective or it lets you level with your clients in a way that I think you can relate to them. You know, you mentioned just now you're different than, you know, a traditional, if you will, a management side law firm, but another way I think you're different, right? As in your fee structure. Cause most law firms, at least on the management side, billable hours drive their revenue, right? And how the business is set up. That's not how you necessarily operate, right?
2: No, that's not how I operate at all. How do you so make I that work? I mean, it works. It's, it's about, to some extent, it's the volume business. So, I mean, I, I have to have client, I, there's a constant churn in terms of client development and all that, but it's a matter of, it's personal to me. Right. You know, you always you see like the, you know, I always joke about like the Godfather movies where Michael Corleone says it's not personal, it's business. But it is personal. When I mean, you're talking about people's livelihood is personal, I don't think law firms really operate that a lot of law firms don't operate that way either, because they have that buffer between the attorneys and the business development end of stuff. And and you know, it's set up to be more impersonal. For me, it's personal. I understand, you know, the pain that the business owner or operator is going through because I go through the same stuff myself not with employees but like business development issues things like i'm running a business so you know it's kind of like how i i I handle it and how i communicate it with them and then my fees are basically you know it's based on my hourly rate but i do have like a monthly retainer fee with some clients where they pay me like on a monthly retainer and uh, you know it's it. It works. I mean, it just works. I think a lot of its personality, honestly, I, you know, where clients, what if the clients like me or the clients like their attorney, they'll use that attorney. I always tell I always have clients or, or people asking me about referrals and they ask, you know, how do I choose an attorney? I'm like, choose somebody you like, you know, as long as all things being equal, if all the level, if their expertise is is all the expertise is the same and equal. Go with the person you like most who you think you could communicate best with. Max, you're muted. Max, so. you're muted. This yeah. happens about once an episode.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> once an episode, a two-part question that's just horrendous, a mute, uh, a false start. Oh, my God. Chuck, so just to circle back on that, I guess, what what is the way you normally do it? So you charge your clients usually at a flat monthly rate unless you have to do real heavy work for them?
2: Yeah, so I do have like a plan where it ranges from like 125 a month to 500 a month, depending on the level of work, where basically it's like an all-you-can-eat plan that excludes litigation and some negotiations. So it's largely to prevent the preventive, proactive HR, labor and employment law counseling, and then maybe some transactional stuff. No representation before agencies. On the- if a case number is assigned, that's like a separate matter. Or if it's uh, a a negotiation that's very intensive or complex, like a merger acquisition or something like that, or maybe busting up a labor unit, a bargaining unit. So yeah, then you know anything that's more complex would be separate. And then you know, and sometimes I do flat fee something depending on you know the nature of the of the work and the, and the complexity of the case. I mean, because what we do, I don't think what we do is rocket science, but I think, you know, when you do, when you get into litigation and all that, litigation is much is a much different dynamic. And, you know, that's the more lucrative end of stuff. I mean, that's to me where the big money is, is litigation. So, I mean, yeah, it's kind of fun in some ways going to court and and all the dispute type stuff and, you know, all the brinksmanship that goes involved in litigation. But, you know, that it is the more lucrative end of things, especially when you're doing insurance work. I feel there's very little we get taught in law school, but we definitely
0: don't get taught that this is ultimately a sales job. So how do you no. how do you approach networking and marketing and bringing in business?
2: Soft sell. Again, I think a lot of it's personality based. So if people like me, they'll be willing to you know to refer. Once I think if they like me, and then they realize what well, my expertise you know that I'm I can walk the walk. that I'm really good. You know that I'm like actually tremendous what I do, and I'm incredibly effective, then they realize, you know, and then also a lot of other attorneys, like I get a lot of referrals from other attorneys. So when you have other attorneys talking you up, you know, it makes a big difference.
1: Do you find that you operate best in certain industries? I know you talk about, you know, you work on the management side of a lot of union shops, but are there, does that mean you're in a lot of manufacturing? Are there certain industries you find yourself intentionally or not dipping your toe into?
2: No, I mean, there's there's no industry I wouldn't check out or I wouldn't get involved in unless 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 they were doing illegal things to begin with. I mean, I wouldn't represent a sweatshop unless the sweatshop was trying to get out of being a sweatshop. You know, I, I wouldn't represent, you know. I wouldn't represent sex traffickers or something like that. You know, I doubt they'd be interested in HR stuff anyway, but...
1: I was going to say, I don't think that's an industry that's terribly concerned with sexual harassment compliance and any of that stuff, so... Yeah, I don't think they have an
0: employee handbook, typically.
1: <laughs> you think? So,
2: yes, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. So, uh, you know, outside the obvious stuff, but yeah, there's... I, I've, done, I've dealt with, like, very complex industries, like, you know, large technology companies, and I've dealt with, like, individually-owned businesses... To me, it's, it's not all the same, you know, and especially when you're talking like when you're comparing dollars and all that. But I mean, running a business, it's a, it's a personal thing. And I get, you know, the, I get the personal aspect or the, the personal investment that people make in their businesses or even in their careers if they're not, you know, if they're salaried.
0: You alluded to this a little bit on the last episode, but
2: why employment law? I just, I'm fascinated by workplace. I just find workplace issues fascinating. Why people behave the way they do in workplaces. I don't know. I mean, not 75% of the behavior I see in workplace, I can't explain why anybody would behave that way. I mean, you know, why would you pick your nose and wipe it on the walls of the bathroom? That's a, a true. You know, that's a true story. Why would you, why would you moon somebody in the workplace or take a crap at publicly, you know, that type of stuff, urinate in coffee, you know, pull a gun, you know, threatening to kill people. And and, and I've dealt with some really, you know, bizarre stuff. You know, I've dealt with attorneys who are working for clients of mine in non-attorney roles who are like, like one guy went to University of Chicago law school. and like, how do you go from University of Chicago law school to work in, you know, for my client in this type of role? And why are you now, you know, why are you so behaving like this way now? You know, why, 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 why do I have to know you? <laughs> you know, why am I dealing with you on this stuff?
1: It, it, I think it was one of our early episodes, Rich Gonzalez talked about like you deal with the public, you deal with, you know, he's been at this for so long it's flipped when his career started, everybody thought your employer could do anything and nothing was illegal. And now it's the opposite. Everybody thinks everything's that the employer wants to do is illegal and everything they can do is kosher. And it's, he said, I'm never, I never stop being fascinated by what people think is acceptable for them to say to their coworkers or supervisors, especially just because they happen to have a lawyer at that point. It's like, they think it coats them in a suit of armor that they can just say whatever they want. And it's like, well, no, I mean, you still work for them. Like you still have to get there every day.
2: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it puts it really well. And that to me is the psychology of work. And, and you know, it's understanding this. And there's always some new wrinkles, just something really bizarre. And then, you know, you're dealing with, you're, you're calling the shots on this dispute or, or this dynamic. And it's like, you know, why would you know why would and and then when they get their attorneys involved, you know, I'm, and then I'm like, aren't sure quarterback and your attorney or second guessing your attorney playing devil's advocate? Like, why would you advise your client to do this? you know, what you, you know, what's your end game, you know, ultimately what you, what what do you expect to get out of this, you know, and and saying that to people, like, why would you think this is acceptable? I've said this to people, you know, sometimes my clients hire me to fire their employees and I have to go out to the workplace and and personally fire them and explain why, why I'm firing them and all that. And, you know, they'll, and it's it's difficult to explain it's difficult firing somebody, especially if I've been representing my client for like a few months and they've been working for my client 30 mm. years. But, you know, then on the flip side, if they act really obnoxious or they did something really obnoxious to warrant their termination, then you know, why would you th- why would you expect us to behave differently to not fire you? You know, if we were, if you were in our situation, why would you think, you know, what what makes you what makes it acceptable or why are you still suitable to work for us?
1: It's a... Uh... It's interesting. I was in my career early on. A judge, once steered me away from criminal and family law, and I only half listened to that. I did some criminal. And he said, it's because you're getting people, it's the most emotional areas of practice, and you're getting people at the lowest moments in their careers. Well, I've been doing employment law for almost the entirety of my nine-year career, with that exception of a, a brief foray into criminal. This is pretty emotional in all directions. I don't know that there's any area of litigation or contentious Anything that any of us does that's not at least in part gonna have some emotion in it.
0: When well, said this in the he said this in the last episode? Employment is one of the most important things we do, our jobs, right? We spend so much time at work. Yeah, it's gonna be emotional when there's a separation.
2: So I, I mentioned in the last episode that increasingly my clients are law firms. So some of my clients have been domestic law firms, like family law firms. So you wanna see a contentious area of law where it's personal. Go check, you know, go check that area of law. But that's not work. That's not necessarily directly workplace related, but I'm dealing with them on workplace related issues. And I mean, you want to see people under the gun constantly check out, like a domestic law firm because it's because criminal law generally, it's solo or small firm. So it's like, you know, I think they're better. In, I think to some extent you could be better insulated if you're solo than if you have like a large firm around you. But if you're working for a medium sized firm where especially everybody's at odds with one another, because that's the nature The nature of their practice is is contentiousness, disputes. It's a wild dynamic. It's a it burnout and all that.
1: It's wild how tough being an employer in law is i mean it's just interesting that these work settings end up being so tough i have found that lawyers often make the worst employers which is ironic given what we a lot of us do for a living and how we you know understand how contracts are supposed to work and negotiations and just generally what the law is and yet i think some of law firms often are some of the most flagrant offenders i would counter that slightly with you've met other attorneys right
2: and yes. that's fair. I think that They would be all yeah, employers. I think I Amit's mean, point is is <laughs> I mean, point is it covers it there. Yeah, because that's why like when I represent the law firms, you know, my usually the law firms I represent, the employees I represent are pretty reasonable. It's their employees who are like, because you don't hire no no business isn't business to hire to hire people and then just fire them. Right. I mean, every union to talk to or employee side, a lot of employee side attorneys will say, Oh, they just want to fire you. No, that's not what a business is in business for. So, I mean, f- when you fire somebody, it's, you're getting pretty much at, you know, you're at, as a business owner or operator, you're at the end of your rope with them. So it's usually a, for a good reason. They want to get rid of them. And then when you're talking with their attorneys, the other side's attorneys, and, you, and sometimes I see how the other side, they run their law firms, too. Like opposing counsel, I see how their law firms are run. It's pretty bizarre sometimes, like the way you see them run. It's like I don't understand, you know, the model of this, like how you call the effective management, or even how you can maintain profitability. So
1: what, I guess that's a decent segue. What do you think one of the bigger mistakes you see? I'm going to ask you the other side. So you're going to get get a fair shake on it. On the management side, because you represent, I mean, anything from law firms to international manufacturers to small, solo, closely held businesses. What are some of the bigger mistakes you see made that get your clients into legal trouble? And I'm just going to assume uh, that they're mistakes that you have not been consulted on in advance.
2: Well, that's part of the problem is that when you don't, when you take an action, a unilateral action without doing your due diligence, you know, to understand all the ramifications and consequences, that could lead to trouble. I and mean, you don't want to rely, I mean, yeah, there's a component of luck, I think, that goes into a lot of decision making, but you don't want, you know, 50% of your decision to be based on luck. So you want to minimize, you know, all the random factors that could, you know, to minimize those random factors and be able to control them as much as possible to be able to make it the best, you know, the most effective decision or cost effective decision for your company, for your business. So what, what I see a lot of attorneys or businesses do, not attorneys, what I see a lot of businesses do is just, is just like skirt or ignore stuff at the ground floor level, gossip or things like that, the stuff that mushrooms into disputes and, you know, kind of blows up in their faces down the line. And sometimes these things take six months, a year or longer to mushroom, you know, to really become something. But you can always, whenever I, I get into dispute, I'm always trying to like walk it back, you know, looking from Z to A, like, how did this all start? who were the people who made the decision, that type of stuff. Because it's one of the questions I'm always asking my clients you know, or trying to find out for my clients is I'm kind of investigating too. Like what led to this? What, what, what decision was made? How do you usually operate in this fashion? Like what do you usually do when you make these decisions? Things like that. And to understand why something went awry. So, it's, so they usually it's just bad leadership, I guess, bad management.
1: Well, and I mean, I think we all see like the workplace drama side of it. You said gossip, like, I mean, you see a lot of employment discrimination. I think harassment and employment discrimination cases are where I see this most frequently is stuff that the employer thinks or or views as just essentially kids bickering with each other when in fact it may be a more serious issue that they just, I get it. They don't necessarily want to have to wade into it and police what they consider to be bickering, but it's like, you got to at least pay some attention to it. Because sometimes it is like a hostile work environment, or there's like an FMLA issue that's coming out of it, you know?
2: And then, you know, on the wage and hour side of it, if you're not listening to employees, especially about disputes, like anything that can involve minimum wage, overtime, anything like that, or premium time, paying out vacation time upon separation, whatever. I mean, anytime you mess with a person's paycheck, you're going to get in trouble. As an employer, maybe not legal trouble, but it's going to cost you a lot of time and energy to resolve that. And then when, so you don't pay. And this is something I told my class, my employee relations class at Loyola. Don't mess with people's paychecks when you when when an employee comes to you or you hear gossip or innuendo about compensation. Somebody's pissed off about their check. Somebody's upset that maybe they felt that too much, too many tax, too much in tax was taken out of their paycheck or whatever. Resolve it, hit it, confront the issue head on don't wait for it don't wait to hear from their attorney or from an agency one topic that's just coming up a lot for obvious reasons is just retention
0: this labor market is super tight it's hard to keep good talent what are your thoughts on what businesses should and can do to make sure they're not losing their best employees
2: well i kind of boil it down to the golden rule i mean treat people treat people as you'd want to be treated i think that's like the simplest way to put it just don't be a jerk to your employees you know be just be uh, in the Yiddish term is mensch, Be you know, just be a, a good person, and you know, don't screw over your don't intentionally screw over employees. You're going to make mistakes. I mean, it's impossible to, to fully comply with the law. It's going to happen. So, don't intentionally make mistakes. And when you and when people raise them, call your, call them to your attention. Do something about it. That's you know, leadership. It's man. It's effective leadership and management.
1: And I. I I often feel like companies are so nervous about getting nailed for breaking the law that sometimes honest mistakes that could be cleaned up with a simple "Hey, sorry about that." It was a misunderstanding, an apology, and correcting it, it. It's almost like a medical malpractice situation, right? Like people are so afraid of being liable, they dig in rather than fixing it. When a simple "I'm sorry," here we've corrected the paycheck issue, may have solved the problem.
2: Yeah, and that kind of goes back to like I think the lawyer is being a leader too. So if I'm if I'm the lawyer and I'm leading. I'm leading them in this dispute. I got to make them see that, you know, whether it's persuasion or whatever, or just uncovering, you know, the way uncovering it like an un you know, layers of the onion or something like that. You know, they may be they may be hearing the same advice from their HR person, but they may not give the HR person that much credence. And then hearing it from their attorney. And then actually laying it out to them, what I've seen happen in cases or what's happened in not, not just cases that I've handled, but reported cases or whatever, and explaining how you get from A to Z and how this could happen and, you know, the, the chances of paying attorneys fees, you know, the other sides of fees and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's, it's you know trying to cover all that ground with them and make and, and get them to understand what their, you know, their position and how maybe that this argument, like we'd rather give you the money, meaning me, you know, their attorney, the money, than give it to the other side. But when, you know, but here's how much I'm going to charge you then to get, you know, to that point, do you want to pay me, you know, five figures versus four figures to your employee? So
1: I, I promised I'd ask you the other side of that question. We talked about how businesses get into trouble. Is there some, is there one most common mistake you see plaintiffs or their attorneys make that you run into a lot?
2: You know, as a sole practitioner, one of the things I've seen is that especially when I'm going up against larger firms and it happens sometimes or sometimes I'm competing with them for business, too. And sometimes I lose business to them. Sometimes I take business from them. It's they underestimate you and they think that, you know you know, maybe this guy's afraid of litigation. Well, no, I'm not afraid of litigation. And frankly, I'm insulted because I'm going to make more money off of litigation than I than I would just trying to negotiate a settlement with you. And why would you think, you know, I'd be afraid of litigation, you know, of going to court with this? Because I'm like, you, you're you going to be exposed to the same risk that I'm exposed to. We don't know. A judge is a wild card. A jury is a wild card. So, you know, or, or they underestimate you and think that, you know, I could run roughshod over them on you know, a procedure or process or on little stuff. I once had, years ago, I was going up against an attorney on a matter in federal court, a wage and hour dispute. And the guy was the guy was just really micromanaging or mic, trying to micromanage me and all these little things, like these, uh, you know, about disclosures and things like that. And I told him like, you know, I don't think judges really care about this stuff, but if you're gonna make an issue out of this with me on this stuff, and it's not really dispositive anyway on the case, at some point you're going to make a mistake and i'm going to i'm going to hold your feet to the fire and lo and behold we're in front of the magistrate judge on a settlement conference for the wage and hour case and he was supposed to deliver to the to the judge ahead of time both of our offers in writing to settle and the judge had this on his website you know that this was it and i brought I, for some reason i just had I just had this gut feeling. I'm like, I got a feeling this is going to come up in the conference. So I actually photo, I actually printed it out and highlighted the part, and, and put it in my head. I had to fold it up in my pocket, you know, my suit coat pocket, you know, this part of it that he was supposed to deliver. So I'm talking to judges, magistrate Judge Arlinder Keys, and um, he's really good. He's a cool guy, and I'm uh, in front of him one day. We're at, not one day, but I'm, we're at the settlement conference and finally we're a one-on-one. So, you know, they start a settlement conference, you're in all in the same room. It's like a mediation. Then they separate you. So I say to the judge, I, I, I said to him like, you know, judge, he, he made some comments to me that made me think that he didn't understand or didn't read my offer, our settlement offer. It's like, judge, have you seen my offer? He's like, no. I'm like, judge, I'm like, he's supposed the other side is supposed to deliver to you. And he's like, and I pull, and I pull off my pocket. The provision with highlighted is like, and the judge said to this He's like, I didn't even know I had this. And I'm like, All right. I'm like, so fine, you didn't know he had this. But I'm like, he, he, you know, he should have known. And I want you to know that this guy's been holding my feet to the fire on every little thing, every procedure, little thing that comes up. And now I want now it's trying for push and come and shove. I want you and I. I stood up. I, I almost got in Key's face. And I was like this. This emotional about it. I stood up and I, I I walked around the table to show him the provision on his rules with the highlight. I said, I want you guys, I want you to hold. Put the, Put on him the same pressure you put on me. I want you to put on him to settle this matter. Same pressure he put on me. And I want you to tell him this. I want you to tell him that Krugel's mad. And he was—he was, he showed me his provision, highlighted, and you didn't do this. And it hit home. They ended up settling for half of what they wanted.
1: I, that it should be the home. start of
2: your bio.
0: Krugel is mad. So to, <laughs> to bring this full circle, you've had your own practice for more than two decades. Yeah. You've counseled a ton of businesses and companies and across every industry. You've seen how law firms screw up. What advice would you give yourself if you go travel
2: back in time with the benefit of all that hindsight? I I still suffer from imposter syndrome to some extent. So I always feel like, you know, I'm going to be found out to be a fake. And I guess some of that has to do with fear. And I think it's the fear of the legal industry and Chicago. Like, Chicago's, you know, I grew up in Chicago, right? Chicago's not that fast paced of a city, but still a big city. It's a rough and tumble city. So, anyway, Yeah, I mean, so it was a matter of just getting over the fear of going out on my own and practicing and realizing that, you know, every, just because you went to Harvard or U of Chicago or whatever, just because you worked for like a high flying firm, you know, this blue blood firm, it doesn't mean you're a great attorney. And even being on a law firm, just because the law firm itself, like, I, you know, I've, like, I compete against law firms and sometimes I've even taken insurance business from law firms, other larger law firms. And, you realize that people are the same wherever. I mean, you know, we're just people making, you know, earning a living, you know, practicing our trade, our craft or whatever. And it's the same almost wherever you go. Uh, you know, I do out-of-state work. I deal with out-of-state agencies. I've come to the conclusion, by the way, that Illinois is like one of the worst states in the nation to do business in. People talk about California or New York. Now, California the regulatory agencies there much more professional and easier to deal with than Illinois. Same thing in New York. I was once dealing with the Department of Labor in New York on a matter, and I, I, I was just blown away by how professional these guys were. At the end of it, when we resolved the case, I'm like, I, I said to these guys, I'm like, I was really impressed with you guys. I'm like, I, I, I don't understand why everybody talks about New York as being so rough and aggressive when in Illinois, I could have dealt with your counterparts here, and these guys would have just said anything to me or just blown off the issue or just you know done a terrible job without even thinking twice about it. One cool thing you can tell yourself if you can go travel back in time 20 years ago is now
0: you're going to be a media mogul, like your media citation. Yeah, I never everything. would have believed that part, by the way.
2: <laughs> yeah. I never would have believed that I'd be like that. The first time that ever happened where I realized like I could get, I could do this part, like with the media was business. We contacted me and this is what happens because you deal with other attorneys. So they were, they contacted me about a recruiting issue in the recruitment industry. And I gave them advice that was contrary to what another attorney told them. I'm like, I don't understand. And this happens a lot where an attorney will say X, another attorney says X, I say i I'm like, I don't understand why this attorney said X on this issue. I'm like, why don't, why don't I do this? Instead of talking to me, why don't you talk to one of my clients? And they interviewed one of my clients. And not only did they interview him, but they had a half page photo of him in Businessweek. And they had like this whole thing about him. And it was all, but ba- the genesis of all that was because I said this other attorney was wrong. And my client proved that I was right. You know, what, what I told him was right. And that's why I realized it's like, so just because these guys are out there, attorneys are out there talking to the media, doesn't make them right. Doesn't mean that what they're saying is right. And just because I might dispute them doesn't mean that I'm wrong either. You know, so, yeah. And, and you realize that it's, and the emperor has no clothes sometimes.
1: Half of life is just showing up and being the person who answers the phone or just is available. Yeah. chuck if people want to find you and get a hold of you to talk shop, to have you represent them, to just hear more of your war stories, how can they find you?
2: They could just Google Charles a. or Charles Krugel or Chuck Krugel or just Krugel. I'd probably come up first. You know, there's not many Krugels in the world. So and you've got a
1: YouTube channel as well.
2: Yeah, I have a YouTube channel with all my video, my media interviews, the video media interviews. On my website, I have all my other interviews and like print audio uh, interviews. It's kind of cool. I mean, the media stuff, to me, like the marketing of law is smoke and mirrors. Right. So that's the the, the business development end of stuff. Like, how can I be a sole practitioner being interviewed on South Korean national television? I mean, why would South Korean TV contact me to, like, talk alongside like some Harvard educated economist or something like that? You know, but yet it happens. And, you know, you realize that it's not, you know, it's not because my I speak in like you know like I'm Thurston Howell the third, or it's not because you know I'm six foot ten, but you know I understand workplace issues. I like what I'm doing, and I think it comes across to people too.
1: Well, Chuck, we. We agree, and we really appreciate you giving us your time, telling us some more Cold War stories, sharing your perspective and your unique practice and story with us, and giving Amit and I a cool view, and which does not help our listeners, but we got a really pretty view of this. <laughs> and you got a cool view of Chicago in your background. So thanks to everybody at home for listening. Thanks again to Chuck Krugel for joining us one more time. Thanks
2: for having me, guys. Appreciate it.
0: Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorneys. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.